Hey, y'all. It's Rose. Before we start today's episode, I want to take a second and acknowledge the current moment and the movement happening in the United States addressing police brutality. One of the most important messages of Flash Forward is that we can and should try to imagine better futures. And that also means getting involved and taking actions that move us towards those better futures. And that is what the ongoing protests and actions in the United States are all about. Fighting for a better future, specifically for Black people in the United States. That fight is incredibly important, and I want to take a minute to encourage listeners, and in particular white listeners, to find ways to get involved. If you don't know where to start, there is now a post on flashforwardpod.com with a short list of resources for how to get activated and find your place in this movement. The episode you are about to hear isn't about any of this, and I thought about holding off on publishing this week, um, but instead of doing that, I am committing to donating 100% of the ad sales from this episode to bail funds across the country. So I just wanted to acknowledge and address what's happening, tell you one of the things that I'm doing, and encourage you to figure out how you can help. Again, there is a post on flashforwardpod.com with resources if you're not sure where to start. Okay, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip into the future to check out what's going on And then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we are starting in the year 2050. Hello, and welcome to Arcadia. Do you have an appointment? Yes, we have a four o'clock under the name Laurent. Ah, yes, here we are. Excellent. Your technician is going to be Dr. Dowell. I'll let them know you're here. Please, take a seat. It shouldn't be long. Laurent? That's us. Great. Please come with me. So you must be Marie, is that correct? My name is Dr. Kurt. I'm Marie's daughter-in-law. I'm Marie. Oh, I'm sorry. My my mistake. Uh, Marie, you're the one who's interested in Arcadia's services, right? Yes, that's correct. Excellent. Well, as you know, what we offer here at Arcadia is completely unique. There is no other facility equipped to perform these kinds of procedures in the entire world. So you've come to the right place. And it's great that you've begun thinking about this early, Marie. Many of our clients aren't even able to visit the facility in person. They have to do the virtual tour. I'd like to take a look at your surgical room at some point. Of course. We'll do the full tour in a moment. Marie, I see here that you haven't specified which package you're interested in. We have the Arcadia Live or Arcadia Twilight. Do you know yet what you'd like to do? No, I'm, I'm undecided. She'll do the Twilight one. Well, we actually recommend Arcadia Live to most clients. We expect the success rate to be far higher with that package. You expect it to be? Or it is? Brigitte, this is my decision, not yours. I'm just not gonna let you sign up to pay someone to kill you. I see. You're a skeptic, Dr. Kern, is that right? Am I skeptical that you can transplant human heads onto preserved bodies? Yes, I am. Of course, I understand. It is truly hard to believe. I myself was a skeptic at first. Why don't you come with me? Let me introduce you to some of our happy clients. With all due respect, Dr. Dowell, I am a neurosurgeon. And so am I. Hmm. This way, let me introduce you to someone. 
we actually employ a handful of former clients here at Arcadia. Whenever possible, we try to offer them jobs here. So let me see if Thomas is around. Wait here for just a moment. Is Thomas around? Oh, there you are. Do Thomas, do you have a moment? Would you mind speaking with a potential client? Thank you. Dr. Kern, Marie, this is Thomas. Nice to meet you both. Did it hurt? The procedure? Not at all. Of course, during recovery, there are certainly some aches and pains, but I'll take those over dying, of course. Thomas was one of our earliest live clients, actually. I'm supposed to believe that this head was once on another body. The fact that you can't tell means they did a good job, right? Or that this is a scam, and you're an actor, and the original Thomas is dead. Oh, a skeptic! So your theory, then, is that Arcadia is able to find actors that look just like each of their clients and pay them enough money to abandon their lives and assume new ones? Well, I have no way of knowing that the original Thomas existed. I'd like to watch a live procedure. I'm afraid that patient confidentiality precludes that, Dr. Kern. I'd like to see my body options, and given that I'm the client here, not my daughter-in-law, I think perhaps we can end this conversation and do that. Of course, of course, yes. My, my apologies. Come with me, and I can show you what we have in stock right now. Of course, now when it's your time, we won't have these exact options, but you can give us a sense for what you'd like most. I was a skeptic too, you know. Not skeptical enough if you went through with it. So you'd rather just die and forfeit any additional time here? I'd rather not die in pain at the hands of a scam surgeon. Life is pain, Dr. Kern. Anyone who says differently is selling something. You're selling something. Head transplants. Today, we are doing head transplants. Well, not like literally doing them, but talking about them. And this episode is going to get into some sort of intense medical procedure stuff. So if you are squeamish about hearing about that kind of stuff, maybe skip this one because we are going to talk about cutting off heads. And this is an episode that has been requested a lot, actually, in part because of the work of one particular person. I am a functional neurosurgeon. I've been working at head transplant for the past, say, almost 40 years. This is Dr. Sergio Canavero. And as you can hear, his tape is a little bit hard to understand. I connected with him by Skype. He was in Italy. I'm in California. And the line just, like, wasn't very good. But we are going to get through this together. Now, you might have heard of Dr. Canavero before. He is a neurosurgeon who has been in the news on and off for years now. Now, an Italian surgeon says that he plans to perform the first human head transplant in two years' time. Could doctors be close to performing a head transplant? Excuse me, a head transplant? Doctors plan on color-coding the patient's severed muscles to make reattachments to a new body. Hooray! This is great news for people who've had their heads cut off, but really are hoping to get back out there into the dating scene. Uh, <laughs> doctors say they got a head lined up. Before we get into any of that, a little bit of behind the scenes here. I went back and forth a lot in working on this episode, trying to figure out the best way to present this idea to you. You should know right off the bat here that Sergio Canavero is very controversial and almost all experts don't trust him. He claims he's being unfairly criticized because surgeons don't want to admit that he's right. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have Sergio kind of lay out for you his ideas and his plans and what he claims is currently possible. Then we are going to unpack those claims and talk about what scientists agree on and what they don't agree on. And then we're going to set aside Sergio and his personality and his claims and talk about the laws and ethics of this whole premise more generally. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Back to Sergio. Basically, what he claims is this. He has figured out a way to sever a human head and place it onto a donor body. Uh, I can't tell you that we are way beyond monkeys right now, but for, for reasons that perhaps I'll be able to explain later on, uh, I can give you many more details because uh, we have so much opposition from uh, the liberal front, from uh, the Vatican, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Now, this is a common refrain from Sergio. He can't say too much about his work because he's being attacked by liberals and the Vatican and other scientists. But Sergio claims to have successfully done head transplants on mice, monkeys, and dogs using what he calls the Gemini Spinal Cord Fusion Protocol. So dogs, dogs running. You can see the video on, uh, it's never been shown on American media, I don't know why, but on Russian Chinese and European media, you can easily find the videos showing the dogs and the monkeys. So it's, it's all there. Sergio was really adamant that I show you these videos, and I will post links to them on the website. The dog one that he's talking about is a video of a dog running in some grass. And we will come back to that in a little bit. But the gist here is that the Gemini procedure involves using a really, really sharp blade to slice the head off one body and then attach that head onto another body such that the two parts communicate with one another and the resulting organism not only lives, but can function in the world as a whole, single, living creature. Sergio claims to have successfully done this on a bunch of animals and says that he is ready to do it on humans. In fact, for a while, he had a willing donor who was ready to have his head cut off by Sergio and have that head attached to a donor body. Valery Spiridonov, a Russian computer scientist, had volunteered himself to be the first living recipient of a head transplant. By the way, just as a side note, it is weird that they're called head transplants, right? Like it should be a body transplant since the head is the thing that is staying, right? The donor is the body. I don't know why they're called head transplants, but they are, so I guess we're just going to go with it. Anyway, Valery Spiridonov volunteered to do this because, in his words, he wanted to get rid of the limits presented by his original body. Spiridonov uses a wheelchair and has a terminal muscle-wasting disease, and Sergio presented this procedure as a way for folks to swap out bodies that might be causing them pain and suffering for new ones. Again, there is a lot to critique here about this, but for now, we're just going to stick with Sergio and his plan. I promise we're going to get into the ethics of this soon. I should also note that in 2018, Spiridonov canceled his appointment to have his head cut off. According to the Daily Sun, which I know is not the most reputable newspaper, but it was the only one I could find that had an actual explanation, in 2018, Spiridonov and his wife had a baby, and he realized that he actually did not want to test out a basically unproven head-chopping-off method. But no matter, Sergio claims that the first transplant recipient will be a Chinese person anyway, because his main collaborators and most of his work, in fact, is now happening in China. So if this ever happens, it will probably be in China. And Sergio isn't really interested in head transplants for disabled people like Spiridonov anyway. That might be a nice side effect, but for him, it's not about that. Uh, I want to perform a head transplant because I want to extend life. Uh, I'm a life extender. Sergio believes that if you were to take a person's head and place it on a younger body, that younger body would essentially make the older head younger. The blood recirculating through the, 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 the aging head to bring about a rejuvenation effect. So you're giving it this a new body, and uh, of course you are rejuvenating the brain, because of course you don't want to have an old brain on a young body, it wouldn't make sense. So that is the real goal here, to live forever, constantly swapping your head out with younger bodies as you go. And yes, this does indeed sort of sound like the plot of the movie Get Out. You have been chosen because of the physical advantages you've enjoyed your entire lifetime. With your natural gifts and our determination, we could both be part of something greater. Something perfect. But I wanted to know more about the actual process here. Logistically, how does this work? So let's walk through Sergio's dream. So let me walk through this. Um, you are now, let's say, you're not, but you are 100. And uh, the year is 2050. You walk into a, a special clinic, an extension clinic. And uh, since we want to do this ethically, uh, you, are, you just get into this, uh, this, into this 
clinic and your body would get cloned. Okay, so I show up and I get myself cloned, which means that I have to do this before I actually want the head transplant, right? Because the clones of me would need to grow up. You don't really want to put an adult head on a baby or even like a teenager. Probably you want to wait until these clones are at least 18 before you sacrifice them. Now, you may be wondering about that sacrificing part. What are the ethics of murdering your own clone to harvest its body? Yes, good question. And Sergio has an answer. We are just going to rebuild, reclone your body without your brain. Right. So the clones you have these scientists make are not going to be regular clones. They are brainless clones, somehow. Let's keep going. It's a huge operating room, specially equipped with, with two surgical teams, Huge surgical teams that just take turns because the, the surgery I can do, we already did it, takes between 24 and 30 hours. So you separate the heads from their bodies and you reattach the head you care about onto the body you want. And uh, you are brought into uh, an intensive care unit and kept there under for about two weeks. During which time uh, you start uh, electrical stimulation of both the brain and the spinal cord in order to speed up the process that has already been started by, by the Gemini uh, fusion. Uh, and after these two weeks, you start you the patient, and you start uh, this, this uh, very intensive rehab program that will just lead you to, to, to being able to rewalk again. And at the end of this rehab program, in which your head learns how to communicate with this new meat sack that it is attached to, you can go back to living your life normally, just with a new body. This is the dream. And Sergio claims that it's not even really a dream. He was adamant with me that he could, today, absolutely connect a human head with a donor body and have that person not only live, but eventually regain pretty much all function. A head transplant is possible now, but with immune suppression. In five to ten years, uh, I expect uh, this to be possible without immune suppression, and it's going to be huge, and in 30 years uh, to get you a, a clone body. And these are the types of claims that get Sergio Canavero in hot water. This claim that not only has he made strides towards a head transplant, but that he can do one now, today, on humans. That in five years, he'll be able to do it without immunosuppressant drugs. And in 30 years, we'll be swapping our heads onto clones. Most experts don't believe any of this. In fact, there are really only two research groups in the world who believe Sergio Canavero, and that is his own research group, and another group that he is working with directly. The journal Surgery published the results of the dog study that we mentioned, and here is a quote from one of the reviewers who recommended that the paper be rejected. Even if the results of the experiment are true, the data presentation is not high quality, and it seems way too phenomenologic. And that is kind of emblematic of a lot of Sergio's work. He wants you to focus on the video of the dog running in some grass. But how are we supposed to know that that dog had a head transplant? We're just supposed to take his word for it, basically. But when you're making an extraordinary claim like that, some more detailed evidence would be nice. And crucially, when you actually look at the results of the dog head transplant paper, I'm not sure that I would call this a full recovery and success. For one thing, most of the dogs in the study couldn't support their own weight after the procedure and developed pressure ulcers. Most of them also had persistent urinary incontinence, and all of the dogs required abdominal massages twice a day so that they could poop. This is the research that Sergio thinks is promising enough to move on to humans, today, right now. And that's not even getting into the question of whether or not these animal studies can really apply to humans at all. We talked about the applicability of animal studies last year on the episode This Is Not a Test, but it can sometimes be hard to actually know whether something that works in a mouse or a dog will work on a person. In fact, even people who admire Sergio Canavero, who are excited about his work, sometimes find his claims hard to reckon with. The animal studies 
have been largely lacking. There's really no way around that. And not only that, but the animal studies that they have conducted have not been entirely too promising as of yet. So for him to jump to make these claims that you were just talking about seems a little uh, avant-garde, uh, a, little, a little ahead, one step too many. This is Dr. Zave Suskin, a physician from Georgetown Medical School who wrote a paper a few years ago about the legal and ethical questions around head transplants. And Zave likes Sergio Canavero. They've spoken on the phone before. He finds his work exciting. But he's also sometimes maybe a little bit frustrated by some of these big claims that Sergio makes because they're pretty clearly going too far. You know, I think he is quoted as saying there's a 90 plus percent chance of success, which is medically outlandish at this point. While he's trying to do a lot of good work, there's a bit of shooting of your own foot that's going on here when you make these statements. When I asked Sergio why he doesn't just do a public demonstration on a dog or a monkey for all the world to see and document step by step, just to put all the questions to bed, he flipped the question back to me. Two years ago, on an Australian, on the, the, the what is Australia 60 Minutes, I challenged all neurosurgeons around the world, especially in the United States, to prove me wrong, to invite me over wherever they wanted, animals or better humans, for their own choice. And uh, I said, let's do this, the, the, the thing, the, let's apply the Gemini Spinal Cord Fusion Protocol, let's make these creatures walk again and uh, disprove me. Of course, nobody took him up on this because that's not really how science works, right? If you are claiming that you can transplant heads, you generally have to provide evidence of this claim rather than challenging other people to prove you wrong. Sergio Canavero has claimed that he is the most persecuted scientist since Galileo. He believes that the established medical industry is shunning him, not because he's wrong or exaggerating his findings, but because they don't want to admit that he beat them to this miracle, that their old methods are incorrect, and that this whole time the answer was right under their noses. Here's the part that's hard to parse, for me at least. It's totally possible that Sergio and his close collaborator, the Chinese surgeon Xiaoping Ren, have made contributions to science when it comes to spinal cord injuries and reattachment. But it's really hard to say because so much of their work is shrouded in either mystery or hyperbole. And while it might seem totally sci-fi to be reattaching heads, Sergio is pulling from a long history of research into this. Scientists have been doing these kinds of experiments for decades because understanding how to reattach a severed spinal cord would be really, really useful to help people with spinal cord injuries. In 1908, a French surgeon named Dr. Alexis Carroll did a dog head transplant. It wasn't quite the same as the one Sergio is talking about. Carroll did not cut the head off the donor dog's body. He actually grafted a second head onto a living dog. And in that experiment, he found that the second head did react to stimuli, at least for a while. The dog did not survive very long, but Carol's work using really fine needles to stitch things like blood vessels was groundbreaking. In 1912, he won the Nobel Prize in medicine for these techniques. In 1954, a Soviet doctor named Vladimir Demikov did a different dog experiment. He attached the front half of a dog, its head and two front legs, onto another complete dog. Again, no cutting off of the donor dog, just attaching an extra dog to the first one. These hybrid animals survived for as long as 29 days. And the stuck-on dog, again, could respond to stimuli and even move. But this was in the 1950s, before immunosuppressive drugs existed, so ultimately the animals all died from transplant rejection. Ten years later, in the 1960s, a doctor named Robert J. White started working on this question as well. White first transplanted just the brains of donor dogs into the necks of other dogs, just to prove that the brains could in fact be kept alive in their non-original bodies. 
Eventually, he did a series of experiments on monkeys that actually did involve cutting the heads off both monkeys and trying to attach them to different bodies. In these cases, the resulting hybrid monkeys were sometimes able to track things with their eyes and even swallow. But none of them survived longer than three days, even with the help of immunosuppressive drugs. And White's experiments were roundly criticized as unethical, abusive, and generally just creepy. White is no longer alive, but a couple of years ago, Motherboard did a short documentary about him. So here he is talking about his work. Well, there was criticism of people, very good scientific people that don't agree with, you know, the direction I've gone. To me, speaking of our work in general, that really transgresses many important intellectual fields, not, not just transplant biology, but philosophy, theology, that if what we were doing was successful, it would be crossing new divisions that had never been crossed before. Because of the blowback White got from animal rights activists, and honestly, I think that blowback was pretty justified in this case, these experiments were really brutal, researchers didn't touch head transplant studies on animals for a while. Then, in 2014, the Chinese surgeon Xiaoping Ren came up with a method that altered exactly how and where you make your cuts on the donor and recipient heads. Many experts think that this was a legitimate discovery, an actual step forward. And then, this is where things start to get kind of muddy. When Ren and Canavero started working together, suddenly we went from, we've made advances in elements of this technique in mice, to, we are going to do a head transplant on people in a few years. And that is a huge jump. This is all to say that there is research, real research, on head transplants out there. There have indeed been breakthroughs in this field, even recently. But what exactly Sergio and his collaborators have added to this existing body of work is really hard to figure out. And it's not just me. <laughs> and, that's, and that's fair. And I'll be honest with you, even those of us who read uh, medical papers and neurosurgical papers on a daily basis have had a tough time discerning that line within Dr. Conavero's work. And it doesn't help, of course, that Sergio Canavero likes to make claims that fall pretty far outside his area of expertise about things like philosophy, psychology, the microbiome. Take the whole headless clones thing. He just kind of glossed over that when he was giving me the rundown. Yeah, just to go back to um, the cloning question, has anyone ever cloned something without a head before? Well, actually, if you just take a page from nature, there are... You, you probably know that there's some fetuses are born without a brain. So being able to grow a clone without a head, uh, well, it's not, it's not that difficult because you, you have just to uh, sort of walk the cloning through certain steps that will be made possible by, through gene editing and things like that. Yeah, you know... Um I think that there's a lot of problems with that. I'm actually quite surprised that Dr. Conavaro envisioned that as his ideal kind of triumph of this procedure. I'm actually quite surprised at that. <laughs> but um, there's a couple things here. One is I'll say medically, I, that's, that's, I, I just can't see how that would be possible. Obviously, the brain does a lot more than consciousness than cognitive tasks like counting or speech or things like that. The brain is essential to all functions of the body, um, from the autonomic function of the heart to how your gastrointestinal system um, kind of construes its bacteria and processes what you eat to telling the body when to pee. Um, I, I, I really can't envision how a corpus, how a body can develop without a brain. I think, again, this is another example of taking the ball 90 yards and then just throwing it on the ground when there's nobody blocking you. Because all of his work, like I've said, I'm a big admirer. I think what he's trying to do with the procedure as of now for those who are truly ill is great. 
but this is this is some, somewhere else. And this is just one example, a classic Canavero, where he is so quick to find solutions to problems you might raise that he's willing to gloss over pretty big scientific questions. Of course we can fix that. No problem. Absolutely possible. He's honestly the most hopeful person I've interviewed in a long time, almost to the point of absurdity. And it's not just the clones, either. He does the same thing with questions like, psychologically, how is someone going to cope with this procedure, with looking down and having a totally different body? Some psychologists have argued that this could be almost impossible for a person to process and could lead them to terrible mental health outcomes. No problem, says Sergio. All we have to do is put you in a virtual reality simulator before the transplant and get you used to your new body. Next question. And he doesn't just do this in interviews. He does it in his papers, too. When he makes any kind of a controversial claim, he cites himself. And then when you go look at the original source, it doesn't in any way prove the claim that he has cited himself to make. And when he occasionally cites other people to try to prove a claim he's making, if you go back to that source, you see it doesn't support the claim he's making either. This is Dr. Paul Root Wolp, the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. And Paul doesn't know this, but he is kind of the reason for this episode. Here's the thing. Listeners have asked for this topic a lot because Sergio is in the news a lot, constantly claiming that this is right around the corner. But I've put off doing this episode for years because I just wasn't sure if talking about it was the right thing to do. Why give someone who's probably selling nonsense a platform? What good does it do to cover what most other scientists consider basically a hoax? But I was reading through the back issues of the American Journal of Bioethics Neuroscience, which is a thing that I do, and I noticed that they had done an entire special issue on head transplants. Paul is the editor-in-chief of that journal, and it was his decision to do this issue. And here is why he decided to commit an entire issue to this topic that some people have argued isn't even worth considering. There were two reasons why I decided to do it. The first was because Dr. Canavero was, uh, had a colleague, Dr. Ren, in China. They had reportedly, or at least they reported, they had permission in China to do this. They had set up a service there to, in fact, engage in this. They had given a time They said when they were going to do this. And for a while, at least, though that fell apart, they had a volunteer patient to do this. So it was plausible that they might actually attempt this. So I felt, as a medical ethicist, it was important to get into the conversation why this was profoundly unethical to try. Basically, as soon as someone's actual life was potentially on the line... Paul felt like ethicists had a duty to seriously weigh in. And the second reason is because the question itself, outside of Canavero, looking into the future, is an interesting ethical question. So it's worth discussing what a head transplant might mean should we ever get to the point where it's technologically feasible and ethically attemptable. And those are the questions we are going to tackle when we come back. Okay, so a few things to say before we fully set aside Sergio Canavero. If you have listened to this show for a while, you might notice that there's kind of a philosophical overlap between this episode and the episode we did last year called Switcheroo. If you heard that episode, you are familiar with some of the things I'm about to say, but I just want to be really explicit. The way that Sergio talks about who might benefit from this technology is often pretty callous and problematic, particularly when he starts to talk about disability and gender identity. Some advocates of this procedure have claimed that this could be a solution for disabled people who, in this version of the world, must, of course, hate their bodies and want to replace them. We've talked about this idea a lot on different episodes, probably most notably in the CRISPR episode called Snip, Snip, Snip. Some disabled people might genuinely be interested in the idea of a body transplant, head transplant, whatever. 
Others might not, because in fact their bodies are just fine the way they are. It is our society and culture that gets in their way by not accommodating them. Sergio has also claimed that this could be a great cure, air quotes there, Sergio's words, not mine, for trans people. Again, we talked about this on the Switcheroo episode, but today most trans people reject the narrative that they were born in the wrong body. And Honestly, it doesn't seem to me that Sergio has actually talked to very many trans people about this. The way he refers to gender and trans people in his writing um, leaves a lot to be desired, let's say. So if you do go read his work on this, which I will link to in the blog post for this episode, just be aware that you might encounter that kind of language and way of thinking. Okay, so for the rest of this episode, I want to kind of leave Sergio Canavero behind. His claims are hard to evaluate and controversial, and they sort of muddy the waters of this conversation. He's such a big personality here, and he's making these predictions, and it makes it hard to talk about the underlying questions of ethics around head transplants more broadly. But let's try to do that. In the Switcheroo episode, we talked about body swapping, but we kind of glossed over the mechanics of how that would actually work. In that episode, we just sort of said like, oh, there's a machine. It's basically magic. Let's talk about what that might mean. And on that episode, we talk a lot about this question of where you are. What makes you, you? Is it your brain? Is it your body? Is it something else? Is it all of the above? And the answer to this question really matters when we start talking about literally cutting off your head. We in the West are what I call cerebrocentric. We think that everything that makes me, me, everything that makes me Paul, um, my memories, my personality, my thoughts, my way of being, are all lodged in physically uh, between my ears. This way of thinking is the only way that a head transplant makes any sense, right? But there is plenty of reason to doubt this idea, the idea that the only thing that matters is the spicy meatball between your ears. And I want to give two examples. One you, you referred to briefly earlier, and that is the microbiome. The microbiome is the um, sum total of all bacteria that live primarily in our guts. And it turns out that they have a profound impact over us, over mood, and now looks like depression and other things can be affected by changing or altering or replacing the microbiome. Scientists don't really know that much about exactly how and to what extent the microbiome impacts our personality. There's a lot of research into this, and it's fascinating and often overhyped and also beyond the scope of this episode. But if you want to hear more about the microbiome, you can listen to the episode Micro But Mighty and read the book I Contain Multitudes by Ed Yong. Side note, I think that at this point I've hit some kind of record for how many past episodes of the show that I have referenced in one current episode. So hooray for me, gold star. Anyway, it's not just the microbiome that likely shapes who we are. There's also something called the enteric nervous system. Okay, listen, I had honestly never heard of this and it absolutely blew my mind. The enteric nervous system is the largest nervous system cluster in the body outside the brain. It is so big that experts often call it a second brain, and it governs our gastrointestinal tract. For example, a lot of people have heard of serotonin. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. What people don't know is that 95% of the serotonin in your body is in your gut. And it's not just serotonin. The enteric nervous system makes over 30 different neurotransmitters. It's like you have a second spicy meatball controlling your body, and we have no idea what might happen if you separated your head meatball from your gut meatball. And this idea that if you took my head and put it on Rose's body, that that resulting hybrid would be Paul and not Rose is a theory. On the Switcheroo episode, we talked about how organ recipients often feel as though they got something somehow from their donors. But when you're talking about a whole body, you probably will genuinely feel the impacts of that body on your sense of self. There's really no analog here. There's no other transplant like this. 
the closest we might have is a face transplant, where when you look in the mirror, you see something else. But even that isn't really the same thing. It is not remotely like a face transplant or any or hand transplant in that it is a profound mixing of two people in a brand new way, and we don't know what the nature of the outcome will be. And beyond the individual impact on a singular person, the recipient, and their experience of themselves and the world, there are some other questions that ethicists raise when it comes to head transplants. If we had plenty of extra bodies and plenty of extra organs, it wouldn't be as much of an issue. But from one dead body, we can get uh, lungs, heart, liver, kidneys, and they can go and save multiple lives. There's a shortage of perfect organs in this world, and we can't yet grow new ones, which is something we covered on the Easy Bake Organs episode. Boom, another past episode reference. Nice. A lot of ethicists think that saving one person with a body transplant isn't ethical when you could instead save many by dividing these organs up and divvying them out to those in need. Now, Paul doesn't actually think that head transplants are inherently always, in every case, unethical. Some ethicists do think that. You can read the various arguments in that special issue of the journal I mentioned. It's open access, so anybody can read it, and I will link to it in the blog post for this episode. That issue also does include two different pieces from Sergio Canavero and his collaborator, Xiaoping Ren. So if you want to read their paper and their response to these critiques, you can do that. But there's one question about this that we haven't really gotten into. You can't kill someone for their body for someone else's head. That's called murder. And when we come back, we're going to get into those legal questions. But first, a quick break. Okay, so let's just say that this is possible, that Sergio Canavero proves all the haters wrong, and he does this, he cuts the head off one body, and he attaches it to another body. Has anybody in this situation committed murder? There are a couple of really interesting and weird legal questions here. And before we can answer them, we sort of have to define which version of this procedure that we're actually talking about. So let's start with what Sergio claims is possible today. You have a donor body and a recipient head, and you do this procedure. In that case, the donor is already dead. So there's no question of murder there. But there is a question of murder when it comes to the recipient. Imagine that you're the surgeon, you cut the head off, and you're preparing it for transplant, and it dies. In what sense have you not committed murder? You just severed someone's head, which, um, you know, under almost any definition is an act of killing. Uh, and after severing that head, the head has ceased to live, as has the body. So even no matter what your intentions were, um, that person is dead. And no matter what their intentions were, you cannot give another person permission to kill you. And even if the procedure goes well, the recipient head actually does have to technically die as part of this whole process. You're going to have to, for a time, stop brain function. There is no way around that, even if you're perfusing it. That's Dr. Zave Suskin again. The recipient does have to uh, undergo death. By definition, procedurally, one part of the procedure in a, you know, 200 step procedure, for example, one step is going to be to stop the life of the recipient here. If things go well, then you bring them back to life and it's all fine. But you do kind of kill them briefly for just a moment. Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Some legal scholars, like Dr. Nita Farahani, have argued that if Sergio did this procedure in the U.S., it would be, at best, active euthanasia and, at worst, reckless homicide. And some of this comes down to another question. Informed consent. In medicine, it's really important that people understand and consent to procedures. And this is sort of where Sergio's boasting becomes problematic again. He claims that he will have a 90% success rate. Even his admirers say that that's ridiculous. 
So if you're a patient who goes in and talks to him and you are promised something that isn't backed up by science, you're not really giving informed consent because the information you're being provided is incorrect. If we're going to go through informed consent and we are going to undertake this procedure, it needs to be done meaningfully and it needs to be done honestly. Then there's this question of the whole cloned body thing. Can your brainless clone even consent to being killed for its body? I think it would be entirely clear that a brainless body could not consent to anything. In medicine, there are really intense debates and struggles over this question of someone's capacity to consent. You know, when you get patients who come in with Alzheimer's, patients who come in with these other illnesses that slowly or suddenly affect cognitive functions or just one part of function, we have to start to question whether they have the capacity to consent to even the most minimal treatments. Now, take it then to this, which you're talking about somebody who has no brain whatsoever consenting to give over their entirety of their body. And that is, there's no sense in which that could be consented to. But if the clone wasn't brainless, you're then absolutely talking about murder. And even Sergio admits that. Otherwise, it would be a murder. It would be just... uh manslaughter, so to speak, because you can't just make a clone yourself and then kill the clone to give you a new new body. So to do this legally, ethically, you really do have to stick with donor bodies, people who have died and marked the little box for whole body donation on their driver's license or something. And speaking of driver's licenses, let's talk about identity for a second, shall we? We covered a lot of the philosophical elements of how a new body might change your identity last year on that Switcheroo episode. But what about legally? How do we legally define a person? So physically, um, DNA, um, which most people are at this point familiar with, is used to define one's identity legally. This is how, in today's day and age, um, criminal evidence Um, paternity testing, things like this are used in order to establish the identity of a person. But if you have this new body, your DNA is mostly going to be that of the donor, right? So are you now them? That doesn't really seem right, does it? Plus, if you get a new body, you shouldn't necessarily get to escape whatever your head did in the past. If person A is $200,000 in gambling debt and they get a new body, things like that, they should still be in $200,000 worth of gambling debt, or they should still have responsibilities towards their children. Again, this sort of assumes that the head is where our entire entity lies, that the body is simply a machine for our brain to command around. And again, we don't actually know that. To be very clear here, you know, everyone has a right to self-determination. And if the patient wakes up and they feel like someone else or they feel like something else, that is within their right. But legally speaking, I think that it is clear within the U.S. legal system, we should simply make it so that they are legally identified as the person they were before. And when I'm saying person here, of course, I'm talking about the recipient. Meaning that if the resulting person who comes out of a head transplant doesn't really act or feel like either the head or the body, but instead some middle person, they will still legally be defined as the head person. And one of the weird things about this whole thing is that for a lot of these questions about identity and who the resulting person is, there's really only one way to find out. You can't ask an animal if they are the same person they were before the procedure. And these are kinds of questions that really the procedure can only be tested in humans. And again, this brings us back to Sergio. He claims he is ready to do this on humans, that he's got everything figured out. Other people are not so sure. 
Paul does not think that Sergio Canavero is actually ever going to try this on humans. Zave thinks he might. And it's worth noting that by moving his experiments to China, Sergio might be able to get around some of the usual ethical standards and rules about what's allowed. And if he does do this, there will be some big questions about what happens next and how successful the procedure really was. It's likely that the first transplants, if they are successful at all, will not result in a person who can go on and live their lives normally for another 30 years or something. Even if the person were to only live for a couple months, but then could no longer live because the kind of immunosuppressants that are required for this procedure aren't sufficient, But even if they were to only live for a couple months, we could learn an immense amount about identity, about brain function, about continuous perfusion of the brain. There's a whole lot of medical, biological ramifications that could indeed be considered successful here. And if Sergio never tries this, then he'll just fade into the distance as another guy claiming that he can do something extraordinary without sufficient proof to back it up. But there will always be someone interested in this question. After Sergio, there will be another scientist, and then another, and maybe, eventually, we will get closer to this kind of procedure. And even though he's not exactly a fan of Sergio, Paul is kind of glad that the neurosurgeon has opened up this door. I actually think the ethical questions around head transplants, who is it, who are they legally, who are they morally, to what degree would it help us understand the relationship between the brain and the other and the microbiome and the enteric nervous system. I mean, they're really interesting questions around head transplants. And what Canavero has given us is an opportunity to talk about them. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussolonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. The voices from today's future were provided by Liz Neely, Eller DeGray, Brent Rose, Sarah Werner, and Libby Larson, who is a patron. Did you know that if you become a $10 patron, you get a chance to be a voice in future skits? Now you know. You can find out more about perks and rewards for supporting the show at patreon.com slash flashforwardpod. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on on the show, send me a note on Twitter or Facebook or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I always love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, you can email me there too. And if you are right, I will send you something cool. Flash Forward only exists because people donate to the show. And if you want to become one of those amazing people, you can head to flashforwardpod.com support to learn about all the different options and how to become a patron and all the rewards that patrons get. If financial giving is not something that you can do right now, one other great way to help support the show is by writing a nice review on Apple Podcasts or just by sharing the show on social media or with your friends. That's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.